Welcome to the Flying Less Podcast, a podcast created for the School of Geography and the Environment at the University of Oxford in collaboration with the University of Oxford's Environmental Sustainability Team, funded by the Green Travel Funds. The Flying Less Podcast, the podcast which asks what you and your university stand to gain by flying less. You know, I don't say that I will never fly again. I haven't flown since 2007. You know, there might be an occasion, but there has to be a really, really high bar. If the aviation industry wants to be neutral, one way is to reduce the flight annually by two and a half percent. We're all happy to point out the problem that actually finding the solution is far more difficult. A one-size-fits-all solution, even at an institutional level, isn't going to work. For me, definitely, I would say that by not flying, I really opened space for creativity, for new ideas, uh, I think very relevant ideas. and for new ways of doing research. I'm your host and humanities turned social science researcher, Dr. Noah Bergstedt-Breen. Welcome back to the Flying Less podcast. This episode is the first Flying Less profile where I find out what it takes to thrive as a Flying Less academic. I speak to Dr. Michelle Veldsman at the University of Oxford, who told me how her perspective on flying has changed completely since 2018. She explains how and why she used to fly, and how she has creatively adapted using editorial positions and social media to continue networking internationally. She also addresses issues of gender, the challenges of flying with a young child, and issues of women's safety at in-person conferences. This interview was recorded on the 23rd of October, 2021. I'm uh, Dr. Michelle Waldsman, and I'm a postdoctoral research scientist in cognitive neurology. Um, at the University of Oxford. So I research how the brain changes with age and the different ways in which we might modify our lifestyles to try to prevent dementia. Did you used to fly? And and if so, sort of what what kind of things would you fly for? What was it useful for? Yeah, I I used to fly a lot. Um, So as part of developing my academic career, I moved to Singapore after my undergraduate. And then I, so In Singapore, I was flying back and forth to see family. So that was two and a half years. And then I would fly around that area to, you know, see Southeast Asia. Um, And then I moved, I came back to the UK for my PhD. Um, And during that, I would fly every year for international conferences. Um, They would be all over the world. And then uh, I actually moved after my PhD to Melbourne. Um, So... There, I was there for about uh, two and a half years. Again, back and forth because of seeing family and things, coming back for weddings, events. Um, And again, from there, international travel, a lot to the US um, for for lab visits, conferences, all of these sorts of things. Um, And then beyond that, uh, every year I've got one big international conference that I tend to go to and I'm really heavily involved with it. It's the kind of key one and it moves all over the world. So yeah, a lot of flying. Wow, okay. So like five, six times a year would be a normal year at that point? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, something like that. Okay. And the choice to go to Malaysia and then Melbourne, was that a proactive choice that you wanted to try living somewhere else and, and work in a different context? Or is that a very typical career trajectory that actually for research positions, it's really helpful to go to other places? Yeah, hugely. Um, I mean, I think hopefully it's changing a little bit, but it's very important for your career, academic career, to sort of build an international reputation. And one of the easiest ways of doing that, I suppose, is to be 
in international laboratories you know you just build up a really big network it's sort of expected I suppose um that that people move and go and do this so yeah it was very much a conscious choice and partly I didn't have children at that point and you know I did think it would be nice to see other parts of the world and get to experience other academic institutions in different parts of the world. So that like the position you have now is at least partly thanks to the fact you did go to other countries and work abroad? Yes, I think it has because, you know, my first position um, and after my undergraduate, I really wanted to get into brain imaging and neuroscience. And I really struggled to find a position in the UK. And then I found a position in Singapore. And that gave me the experience that I think then got me jobs after that. So... Yeah, I do think it helped. Great. It'd be, actually, it'd be good to unpack these because I was assuming in experimental psychology, I thought maybe this is a field where, you know, there's actually not that much research travel, but obviously you were talking about lab visits. So yeah, maybe just to unpa- unpack those, could you talk a bit about why when people do fly, why is it useful? Uh, it's mostly just getting experience in different environments, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be honest, I the more I think about it and the more that we've reflected on it, it's it's really becoming increasingly difficult to justify because you know a lot of the experience is the same yeah I mean you know there's not you know we're doing essentially the same work and a lot of it we can be done remotely I suppose you it's this idea of building up an international reputation but that in itself is really not a useful criteria for advancement in careers because you know it's really limiting to very privileged people. At the time when it seemed completely natural to you to fly to a conference and everyone was doing it, uh, what was the thing that, that made you feel like that is worth doing? So there were two things, really. Uh, and one was that it was this opportunity to just connect with people that you'd met sort of, you know, through the different lab visits or, or through um, this international network. It really was a sort of useful way of getting a lot of information in my field. I think conferences are really important because we've got a really multidisciplinary field and things are advancing very quickly. And it probably is the only time where you have a concentrated period of time to really get advanced in your field and to do training. So a lot of them have like a week beforehand where you where you can train in new methods and things like that. From a scientific perspective was very important. And also, of course, getting your own work out there. So, you know, when you've done some work and you published a paper and you want to share that with with your field, that's one of the best ways that you can. Um, the other thing is that academia is really difficult and you work so many hours and you sacrifice a lot. Um, and so for a lot of people, and certainly for me, it was actually like my holiday every year. So I would very much like time a holiday around my conference. And, you know, a lot of them would go to really nice locations that I wouldn't normally go to. And then that would be my holiday, you know, do a week and then maybe a weekend after stay there and just see a bit of the place. What was that key moment where you thought, OK, I, I might need to think about reducing or, or stopping flying yeah there were, so there were a couple of things my last big international um flight was to singapore in 2018 so not that long ago and i took my eight-month-old daughter um and it was a very stressful time i had a lot of responsibilities within the conference and so i couldn't miss it um, my husband was flying somewhere else and i couldn't face leaving my eight-month-old daughter for a week 
So the only option really was to just take her with me. Um, and that whole experience was very, very stressful as like a new mum on a long international flight with jet lag. And all of that was really, really stressful. And I can't even imagine, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I started to sort of think, why am I doing this? <laughs> this is unnecessary amounts of stress for something that um, I, I shouldn't need to do. On top of that, I, I remember speaking to a very senior academic and about traveling generally and hearing that they were traveling. Um, they were flying to the US for like a single day and flying back. And they were doing this, you know, multiple times a year, like ne- just didn't stop flying. And I just thought that is, that's insane. Like how, why are we doing this? And of course, there was always this building awareness of, of the climate crisis and of, of, uh, of my own impact on, on the world. And then, yeah, I just realized this is all a bit much because, you know, this one senior academic I'm talking to is doing this and they're probably meeting 10 others and you know everyone's doing this all the time and if we start to scale it it becomes actually quite frightening there was just one more so Rome Mm. was my last sort of shorter flight then I took my daughter again and my husband so this is the same conference that I go to every year Mm. Um, and that was the last time that conference was in person that was 2019 so then it was the pandemic yeah um and I remember being at that conference mm. and thinking, uh, again, why are we doing this in person? Yep. And I then started to really think about there must be a better solution to this mm. and had actually um, designed completely a sort of online conference and started to think about how we could do this remotely so that we wouldn't have to have all of these academics mm. flying everywhere all the time. Um, and then the pandemic hit. Yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly... Everything was forced yeah. to be made online. And so that was quite a, a good thing in terms of giving us alternatives to flying. Yeah. Did you say you designed a whole online conference? I did, yeah. I sat, I remember sitting with my, I'd been thinking about it for a long time. And I sat, so every time I went to these conferences, I would, you know, it started to, I started to think there's got to be better solutions to this. Because they're not, they're not particularly family friendly and they're not, they, you know, they, they, they're a problem for accessibility for people. They're expensive. They've got this huge carbon footprint. Um, and so I, I just kept thinking about it and kept trying to think of a way that we could make it better. Um, and so, yeah, I sort of, I just designed like a, a, an online platform that would be able to allow you to do this kind of virtual conferencing the majority of people were sort of reluctant because of this idea that you know you see your colleagues in person and it's the one time of year you get to travel and there's never going to be a good there's you know there's never going to be a good alternative to that in-person networking I gave up on it because so many um so many other platforms popped up how do you describe yourself? Would you say flight free or flying less? Or do you, do you how do you think about it now? I, I'd say flying less. I don't think I'm completely flight free. Yeah. It's been difficult because I haven't, you know, the the opportunity isn't there. You know, it's easier now because we're just not flying as much. Did you have a period of not flying before the pandemic or did it actually coincide really quite exactly? No, I did have a period of not flying yet. I, so, so I stopped after, so Rome was the last flight. Yeah. Um, and that, and, but it did somewhat coincide. 
But uh, yeah, I, I made a decision not to do any of any long haul flights. And then the short haul ones, I would do, uh, I'd use trains um, and try to do online where possible. I guess in a way, some of the, the fear that has to be overcome in doing that, uh, as well as the practical sides of, you know, how did you start to say no, which I'm assuming is not an easy thing to do if everyone's talking about going to a particular conference or could you come and give a talk? Presumably like half the battle is kind of, okay, what do I do now? That is um, that is a, a really a big issue for people and for, it was for myself as well. The first thing I suppose I did was to just assess if there's an alternative, basically. My preference would be to go to a place in person because I do believe that there's, there is still some benefit to that. Um, and so if I can get there by an alternative means, then I would ask for that. And some universities were already quite open to that, actually. Uh, Max Planck in Leipzig, they were, they actually offered me that from the beginning. It was kind of a difficult choice to make because you have to make some sacrifices and you have to accept that that might take a hit on your career. So maybe you need to find kind of alternative ways to boost, you know, your CV. What kind of alternatives, how, how long did it take you to find them and, and what kind of things did you find? I suppose for the international conferences, um, one of the things I found was useful is that you don't need to have multiple people going. This is also a very strange feature of, of academia, of our discipline anyway. And partly it's to do with, you know, the networking and, and the, the social side of things. A lot of the time labs, whole labs go and lots of people presenting the same sort of work will go. And that seems quite unnecessary. So already if there's somebody else in your lab, then they can perhaps present your work. And so your work can still get out there without you physically needing to go. Another alternative is to just try to do things locally. So there is enough local activity whether it's in your university or in your country or in a, a country that you get to by train or, or whatever other means that you can you can do that as well you know it's not everything has to be a flight across the world um and then the other thing the thing I think that's been most useful in kind of holding together my international reputation as it were is social media so um just being on twitter um I have kind of created a really big network through that. Um, also being on committees, like for example, conference committees, where you naturally attract a, a large international network. That's another really useful way because then you're not having to be somewhere in person, you can kind of meet virtually. I asked Dr. Veldsman to speak about her active social media presence, including Twitter, where she has over 4,000 followers. I wondered what recommendations she would have for other academics to develop their presence on social media. You know, if someone is new to this or they're trying to take it more seriously, maybe they have a small, a small following, how, how did you build yours up? And also another question about that might be, um, what's the balance for an academic between, you know, do you simply post about when you have a paper or do you make it almost like an identity? It's a bit more personal so people get to know you in your identity as well. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely as much as you feel comfortable with. I post everything, like I'm like an open book on there, uh, which some people feel really uncomfortable with. But for me, I think it's really helpful for me and it, and it also connects me to a lot of people. A lot of people have anxieties and like, uh, you know, mental health problems, um, worries around their careers and their families and, and all of those things. 
Um, and I found more than anything that's like really helped to connect me to other people. So I, I quite often post about the difficulties of being a, a parent with young kids and trying to manage an academic career and my own my own mental health um, struggles with anxiety and, and depression. I also post about my academic work. So if I have a new paper, I'll print uh, you know, I'll post a link to it or I'll, I'll talk about it. I advertise events on there. If I'm giving a talk, then I'll I'll tell people that that's happening. That sort of first aspect of being really open about my life has probably been the thing that's gained me more followers actually than the academic reputation because people can really relate to it. Yeah, and I found when other academics, especially when more senior academics, share those aspects of their life, it's really encouraging because, you know, you feel like you're not alone in some of the struggles. Thanks. No, I can see that really creates a community and um, does more than just something that's purely academic. There might be a feel like I could imagine a situation where perhaps there's only a, a particular type of um, academic who's on Twitter. But is it actually quite broad from senior academics to early career and everything in between yes hugely broad I think I think it's amazing because you can interact with people senior academics that you normally would probably not easily have access to and yeah I mean I think of people whose papers I've read throughout my career who I really respect you know I've just sort of spoken to them directly and had exchanges about um you know technical aspects of work or or they've you know, shared my work or, you know, things like that is, is, is really amazing. Um, and that, you know, helps to build your academic reputation. So I've got a lot of, I know, a lot of talk invitations I've gotten and um, not just academic talks, but talks about, um, you know, about flying less or about mentoring or about my life as a woman in science. I've got lots of invitations for those things all, all through through Twitter, really. I think it's really helpful for kind of networking and building a reputation. How do you feel going forward? How much have you replaced from what you had before? Is there anything you're still missing, still looking to find a creative way to adapt to? Or yeah, how do you see it now? I see it very differently now, where I, I really feel like before it might have been trickier to say no to the maybe once a year big international conference. Now I feel like there isn't really an excuse anymore and that we can't go back to how things were before. And part of that now for me is actually getting involved in the organisation of the conferences. So for this one um, organisation of human brain mapping where I was going to that every year, that was my major international trip every year. Now I'm really involved in, I'm actually on the council and I was involved in taking it online last year. Uh, this year I've lost track of the years um and so now yeah now now we're really trying to um find ways to to go forward where we are just making it a lot more accessible and and sustainable I think the threshold now for me to to fly is a lot higher so it would take something quite uh I don't know what it would take really for me to justify it essentially interesting yeah i've heard a few people say that actually during the interviews that they sort of they don't yet they almost don't yet see themselves as someone who doesn't fly but it also 
Yeah, they can't imagine getting on a plane at the same time. Like they're sort of wondering how long it goes before they go, okay, actually, I don't fly. <laughs> so some, some people say, you know, the risk with cutting flying is to early career researchers uh, or to those with caring responsibilities. But I wonder how you feel about that, because obviously you are... I think both of those things, is it still fair to call you early career researchers? Yeah, I think so. It, it, it's definitely a consideration because, yeah, ultimately it would take me away from my family for, from, for longer. I suppose what really needs to change is that we need to have less emphasis on the importance of doing these um, talks and things in different places. And if you do, then there should always be an option to do it online. For me, I don't think there's any disadvantage to me having done a lot of these talks online because people still email me if they want to collaborate and so I, I think that would that really has to be the compromise that first of all we we judge people less on how much they're traveling so it shouldn't be a criteria for your scientific advancement that you have traveled all over the world that's really a, a diversity inclusivity issue as well um because already we you know we're very Western focused or we're just um, we're excluding people who, who don't have the financial ability to travel. Because, I mean, a lot of the time you have to fit the bill yourself before you get reimbursed. So that's that's crazy. As it is. You know, when you're a, when you're a young family and you're, you're paying all these nursery fees and all of these other things, you really don't need to be putting out all this money to go to a conference. Quite a few people I've spoken to have talked about a kind of creative adaptation when they stop or either dramatically reduce or stop flying, that it actually has personal implications, the way they think about time, the way they think about their own academic practice. Um, it, but that may not be for everyone. So just if, if it'd be interesting to know if, if it has had any knock-on effects on the kind of decisions you make or if it's actually just quite a pragmatic um, thing and... and yeah, I suppose when I when I started thinking about flying less, it was a lot. To, it was mostly to do with the environment and also to do with the practical difficulties of having a young family and not wanting to leave them all the time. When I really started to get involved in finding solutions to this, and you know, um, getting conferences to go online or to go hybrid, I started realizing there's so many more benefits. And that is this idea of inclusivity and the fact that we can engage more people from from like the global south, just getting all of our work out there more, um, getting people involved more, um, finding new and really interesting ways to engage with people and to like set up mentoring across the world. And, and even like so, like things like, you know, personal safety, That's that's been an issue that's really been overlooked. But a lot of the time you have people traveling alone to other parts of the world and um there's an issue with women's safety um that yeah you don't have to worry about those things because people can be people have a choice so i think there's that that's probably been the most knock-on that i've realized that there's many advantages to doing things just online and not having to travel there. Thank you, Dr. Veldsman. And thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by myself, Dr. Noah Bergstedt-Breen, and edited by Ryan Beckerleg, a PhD student in the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Cardiff and radio host extraordinaire of Cardiff's Student Radio. The artwork is by Arda Yushich. 
The podcast music was written and composed by Julian Bell. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please help us to spread the Flying Less message by sharing your favorite episodes on social media and by recommending it to colleagues and students. The Flying Less podcast, the podcast which asks what you and your university stand to gain by flying less.